Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. When Atlanta was selected to host the 1996 Centennial Olympic Games in 1990, the event was a turning point in the city's trajectory. To mark the 30th anniversary of that moment, the Atlanta History Center opened the exhibition Atlanta 96, Shaping an Olympic and Paralympic City, which is on view through the end of this month. Later in the show, we'll hear from curator Sarah Dilla. First, we'll listen back to one of our favorite interviews of 2020. Emily Blunt is among the most popular actors working today, all the more remarkable as she overcame a severe stutter as a child. Now she uses her celebrity to help others suffering from the disorder. Blunt is the spokesperson for the American Institute for Stuttering. In November, Emily joined me along with Carl Herter, the clinic director for the Atlanta office of the American Institute for Stuttering. She began by discussing her own struggle and her advocacy work. Stuttering is one of these things that there's a lot of misinformation about it. And I think usually people associate it with a nervous disposition or some psychological disorder, but it's actually genetic. It is neurological, it's biological. It runs very prominently in my family. So my grandfather, my uncle, my cousin, myself, we are all stutterers to varying degrees. But I first noticed it as a lot of children do. There's about 8% of uh, preschoolers who develop a stutter. And so I noticed it beginning around four or five, I started to recognize that mine was really, had its claws in me and was not lessening and was not leaving because most kids grow out of it. 75, 80% of kids will grow out of it. And then I think by the time I was about 10 or 11, it, it was at its most prominent. And it does impede you in so many ways. You can't even begin to imagine how much it impedes you because 
I think I felt even as a child it misrepresented who I was and who I wanted to portray to the world. And that was really painful at times. Something that was especially interesting to me in reading the prep and Carl reading over what the Institute does is what you mentioned initially, that it is a neurological condition and not a psychological condition. So there are ways of treating it and managing it that aren't draconian or don't involve severe psychological therapy. But for a child or an adult who hasn't outgrown it, not to be aware of how common and how treatable it can be, can be damaging for life. In the movie The King's Speech, I think that the psychological aspect of it was brought out, even though Lionel Logue used a lot of positive reinforcement. I think some of the takeaway was this emphasis on an inferiority complex that King George VI had. What were your thoughts about that portrayal, about that depiction, which really opened a lot of people's eyes to the affliction? Carl, do you want to go first on that? Do you want to talk about... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, from what we know about Lionel Logue's relationship with the king, it was portrayed quite accurately in the movie, in what they did. They added a lot of the historically known treatment methods that were tried with people who stutter. And, you know, what I hold on to in that movie is that they had a beautiful relationship. The two of them had a wonderful connection and rapport. And even though what they were doing in therapy is not what we do now in therapy, what we know about therapy is that one of the major aspects that makes it useful and helpful is that relationship and that rapport. Uh, so trust. Yeah. Trust is important. Of course, that's not easy when you have the added layer of dealing with the king. But um <laughs> Fortunately, very few people have to deal with that. Emily mentioned about 11 years old. I read that something transformative occurred for you when you were 12. Sure. Well, I had this really extraordinary uh, teacher who I credit with being the first person who allowed for the record to stop skipping for me and just an incredibly intuitive man and a kind man. And we were putting on a class play and I'd always wanted to do a class play and I'd always wanted to read my poem out in class and I wanted to do all of those things, but I felt I couldn't or I felt people would laugh at me, so I didn't. But this teacher said to me, would you like to be in the class play? And I said, no, I definitely don't wanna do that. And in fact, I don't think I was able to say that, so I just shook my head. And he said, well, I think you, sh I think you would be good because I've seen you outside and I've seen you messing around with your friends and doing silly voices and different accents. And he said, and I think you speak quite fluently when you do a silly voice. So why don't you just do it in a silly voice? Which is sort of extraordinary coming from somebody who doesn't stutter 
to subconsciously understand that maybe when you do a different voice or you play somebody else, you're able to bypass it because you sort of leapfrog to different aspects or different parts of your brain. And whether it's a psychological freedom of freeing yourself from yourself and therefore being somebody else and speaking fluently, even in a silly accent, which I'm sure it was a dreadful Northern English accent that I put on at the time, (laughs) but it was just a revelation to me because it just, I had never had that experience where I could speak fluently and consistently. And so since then I've met through AIS and I drag every actor with a stutter that I meet along to our event, don't I call? And like everyone comes <laughs> to our event. And a lot of them from Bruce Willis to Samuel L. Jackson, Harvey Keitel, Ed Sheeran had a stutter. I mean, but a lot of these actors have all said the same thing that when they're on screen, they don't stutter. Is it because there's safety in being someone else, not being someone else, but portraying someone else? There's safety in that role. Yes, I think I think that there is. I think that there's a freedom that comes with disassociating maybe how people look at you when you when you can disassociate from that. And I spoke to this incredible psychologist about it once, and he literally said, I think it's because you just, you access a different part of your brain. And when, when you act, when you sing, when you act, like you, it's, it's a completely different part of your brain that you're using. And because stuttering is neurological and that's the basis for it, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Carl, what causes the disorder? We know it's neurological, but are there certain ages that are more vulnerable when it appears and and how should one attack dealing with it it usually pops up around the preschool ages you know around three is when it pops up most commonly around when they get conversational and like emily pointed out it is genetic a lot of the time we believe that even when a child who is stuttering doesn't have any family history of stuttering, that even those children likely have some sort of genetic predisposition to experience it. And we, in specialists who work with people who stutter, work with kids as young as two and three years old. We know that a lot of these kids can naturally outgrow it, but we don't have a good way of knowing which kids those are. I was stunned to read in in your material from the Institute that there are only 200 specialists in the entire country, in all of the United States, who are certified or, or credentialed with dealing with stuttering. Why so few? Our field has some catching up to do. Yeah. <laughs> Board certification is new in our field, relatively new, and it's uh, an extensive process to go through to become a board certified specialist. And so that's part of the problem. Uh, but it's also become this little niche specialty area in our field because it is so different to understand the lived experience of stuttering when you compare it to all of the other things that we are certified to treat. Mm. Emily, I know that you came out, if you will, as a stutterer in 2009. That was was a year before the King's speech. So I wondered what made you feel that was the right time? 
Well, to me, it's, it is just part of my story. It's part of what has built me as a person and I have nothing to be ashamed of with having and I think often people people associate a lot of shame with stuttering because it is bullied it is that there's so much intolerance towards people who have one and I think a lot of children a lot of adults are so held hostage by this I used to think of my stutter as being like an imposter in my body it just was misrepresenting who I was and who I wanted to portray to the world. And I was aware, and much more so once I met Carl and the gang at AIS, but that it was a widespread problem. And I didn't understand why no one talked about it. And I didn't understand why this condition and this disorder was bullied and others weren't. And why there's a free pass with a stutterer to humiliate them. And I think that just was bothering me. And I, fe and I felt very strong. This is part of my life story. This is part of my makeup. And struggle is great. We need it. We need it to overcome it. It's an important thing to struggle in life and to know that you can overcome those things. So I just have always wanted to speak very frankly about it because I remember how hard it was. I remember how painful it was. And I don't like the thought of other people living in pain and feeling rather lonely about it because I don't think you should feel alone if you're a stutterer because there's 60 million people around the world who have one. It's staggering. And by 2009, your career had taken off and it, it was very generous of you to talk about it publicly in hopes of helping others realize that being a stutterer doesn't mean you cannot be successful, much less speak beautifully. Well, abs absolutely. I mean, the fact that you can look at me, hopefully, and everyone from Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson and President-elect Joe Biden and anyone you want to look at and think, my goodness, that could be me. So you are not defined by your speech. You do not have to be defined by it. It is not who you are. It is part of who you are. Actor Emily Blunt and Carl Herder, clinic director for the Atlanta office of the American Institute for Stuttering. We'll be back with more of that conversation after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my conversation with Carl Herder, the clinic director for the Atlanta office of the American Institute for Stuttering and Act 
Dr. Emily Blunt. She works as an advocate for the Institute because she, too, suffers from the affliction and wants to help others who struggle. Emily is an award-winning actor who has starred in movies such as Charlie Wilson's War, The Devil Wears Prada, A Quiet Place, and Mary Poppins. I asked if she must take a special approach to speaking lines when she gets a new script. I'm so happy you asked that question because I think people look at me nowadays and they think, well, she doesn't have a stutter. You know, you, you sound great. You don't, you don't have one. But there are certain environments, I would say less a table read, where I still struggle is if I have to pitch an idea. So if someone says, well, what's your thought? And if I have to pitch a line change or a scene change, or I've rewritten the scene and I want to persuade people as to why I think it should be this this way, that is when it flares up for me. That is the only environment I find myself in where it really flares And I think it's the need to persuade, the pressure to persuade. Because as Carl and I have discussed, it's not that stuttering is drawn from having a nervous disposition. That's not the basis for it. But there are stress-inducing situations that you find yourself that will magnify your stutter. So I think those are the times I find myself having an influency in how I speak. And I think it's because I feel enormous pressure. And the other time where I struggle is if I'm on the phone and I'm calling someone and they say, can I ask who's calling? And I have to say my name. Oh, Stutterers will attest, there is no substitute for your name. So you cannot do the sort of vocabulary gymnastics that you're often having to do substituting words left, right and center so that you can sound fluent. You can't substitute your name. So it is, I would say, right, Carl, across the board, the thing that stutterers struggle with most. What's your name and where do you come from? And so I still, if I'm calling someone and they say, who's calling? I'll be like this. (sighs) Emily Blunt, still. Oh. Oh. Those are the only situations, but um, yeah. This speaks to what you were saying about stress being a trigger because... There's nothing stressful about saying your name, except that goes back to your earliest years, to your essence as a child. And I think this is why it is so important for people who are well-known and have made sweet use of the adversity to talk about it. I have had the pleasure of interviewing Henry Winkler three or four times now. I think it's four times. And you may know he is a fierce advocate for dyslexia research and therapy. And he says to this day that he is very self-conscious in table reads even after he had gained fame as playing the role of Fonzie on the happy days, he was embarrassed at script reads because he had so much trouble with words. But like you, he had a teacher in high school who encouraged him to act because he was funny and he loved making people laugh. 
And this really speaks to the importance of role models in a child's life. Absolutely, because I just always believe that a great teacher can change your life. And I and I hear about this all the time, people who have had that one person, a teacher or a coach or a family member who have literally changed the course of their lives by simply saying, I'm here and I understand you and hey, try this. And I think Carl offers that for so many of these kids and adults who come to see him in Atlanta and certainly when you were in New York as well, Carl, that you just need to feel that you have a support system, that you have a network. And I think, and to feel that you're not alone. And that's what's so exciting about what AIS do is that they also do a lot of group sessions where kids can be with each other and see that they're not alone and see that they actually have a whole network of people who are just like them and understand every single single nuance of what they're experiencing every day. Well, tell us, please, if you can, about the meeting with children from the AIS here in Atlanta. What sort of stories did they share or did they feel confident enough to share with you? Often, if it doesn't, I guess, obviously run in the family, the parents are in such an anguished position because it's an anguished experience for parents to see your child go through something like this and not know how to help them. So I love speaking to parents as well because I think I can offer some kind of solace and some help, you know, to know that it's not going to define their children for their whole lives. And and I love meeting the kids. And I think what's wonderful about AIS is that their whole technique is very confidence boosting. It's actually, they sort of do this reverse psychology, which I love, where they don't say, oh, I stutter really badly. You say, oh, I stutter brilliantly. I'm like an amazing stutter. (laughs) So that you start to kind of wrap your arm around your stutter in a way that's more loving. And I think that is really the kind of pinnacle of, and the key points and basis of what they do at AIS, that it's not about masking it. It's about wrapping your arms around the fact that this is a part of who you are and it will always be a part of who you are. And so the kids who I speak to at AIS, they're actually not shy because they've all been encouraged and emboldened by people like Amazing Carl and all the other clinicians working at AIS. They have been emboldened to speak and that you have a voice and you have something worth listening to. And they free up these kids' voices, whether or not they're fluent or not is irrelevant. It's that actually every kid I speak to at AS, they come right up to you and they just talk at you and tell you exactly what they want. And that is so exciting that you've got kids who are no longer held hostage by this disorder. That is fantastic. Carl, what do you hope for AIS in the future. I mean, we have marvelous spokespeople. You have the list of famous stutterers, which is like a who's who of (laughs) exciting people throughout the past two centuries. How can you reach more people who must learn about stuttering and how to treat it? Well, we'd like to establish more offices. Right now we have offices in New York and Atlanta, but what we're learning more and more through COVID actually is that we're able to work with people all over the place online. We were doing plenty of that pre-COVID, but we're doing 100% of it that way now. 
And so we want people to know that we can work with them just about wherever they are. If, if it's the little kids that we normally like to see in person, we end up working a lot more with the parents and kind of a consultative model. But we are actively working with people who stutter and their families throughout the country. And in the future, we'd also like to engage more with getting the word out about the teasing and bullying that can sometimes happen with stuttering. You know, Emily commented on it before, and it really is one of the problems that people have that still gets mocked and teased. Great. I think mostly because it's misunderstood. And, you know, one of the major issues with stuttering is that people who stutter do know what it's like to not stutter because stuttering is variable. It happens in one situation and not in the next. (laughs) And so, and that's where a lot of the shame and guilt and frustration comes from because it pops up when you least want it to pop up which is why we work so much on teaching people that it really can be okay to stutter. And by working on living that reality that stuttering is okay, we actually improve fluency. <laughs> so it, it is this, this opposite paradoxical issue that we're, we're teaching people about. And we, we'd like to continue to spread the word that this is a, a variable problem that comes and goes And while it is worsened by stress and anxiety, that is not the root cause of it. And we want people to know that people who stutter can do just about whatever they want if they have the courage to give themselves permission to speak freely. And honestly, it's, I'd be remiss if I didn't add that, you know, President-elect Joe Biden proves that. Yes, I think that campaign, I don't know if you called it video, it was a moment on the trail when that young boy approached him was so emblematic of the kind of empathy our country needs. And also, dare I say, fortuitous for your cause, not at the expense of the boy, but to bring it to the fore that, look, look at this. You can be present in the United States too. Is that exploiting the little boy? No, no. Brady Harrington has become quite the celebrity in our circles. Good. He's got, another, he's got a podcast episode or an interview, you know, every other day. And his, <laughs> his dad has become his agent. <laughs> and, uh, he's, he is, I've, I've met him and, and we've done our own event that he participated on. And he is a tremendous young man who has a wonderful therapist who is teaching him to boldly be himself, to have a, a growth mindset about his ability to speak more freely as he grows. And we are so, so thankful that he was willing to to throw in with the campaign and demonstrate what letting your stuttering out can really look like. Actor Emily Blunt is a dedicated advocate for the American Institute for Stuttering. She was joined by Carl Herder, clinic director for the Atlanta office of the Institute. You can find out more about the organization and the disorder on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Since its debut in 2017, the social media app 
TikTok has garnered over 800 million users worldwide, and its popularity has still grown substantially since the COVID-19 outbreak. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke via Zoom with Kudzi Chikumbu, the director of creator community at TikTok, to find out how people are connecting via the app during the pandemic. As we think about TikTok today, right, it truly transcends generations. Like if you open the app today, you'll see everyone from teenagers to college students to parents to grandparents either creating separately or even the more heartwarming videos created together. Like LeBron James and his sons are all in the same video um, and his whole family actually. So it truly is a, is a platform that transcends generations. And I think that's how we will continue to make sure we are bringing um, joy to people and making sure that everyone feels that it takes up and be a place to go to to express themselves regardless of age or ethnicity or background or whatever. And I think that's one of the things that's made TikTok really popular is that it feels welcoming at any stage of your life. Do you think this has changed from, because it was mostly pegged as a Gen Z or and millennial app kind of before the coronavirus pandemic. Do you think this has changed during the coronavirus pandemic? Yeah, it's been really, really exciting to see families come together and like truly co-create. And you can either be in the same place if you are, you know, staying at home together in one home or in different locations by using the actual tools on the app, right? You can co-create to someone's sound. You can um, send someone a video and like stitch it together if you want. And before kind of COVID-19 coronavirus, TikTok was still really Gen Z millennial, but also more than that. And now it's only increased because people have more time to co-create. Right. That That's so much fun. It makes social distancing feel less distant because people are being able to come together virtually through this app. During this time of social distancing, why do you think TikTok users are creating videos in response to the pandemic, either like as a coping mechanism or to bond with their families? The reason why people use TikTok is just amplified right now. For me, it's really three things. One, it's creativity and joy is one. Two, it feels you know, diverse and inclusive. And three, that feeling of community and connectedness. And when it comes to creativity, you know, even I, my sister, she's in her late 20s and she was at home with my parents. They're staying at home together. And she sent me a video of her making a video with my mom. And I haven't seen my mom be creative in a really long time. And I think TikTok has really kind of unlocked that creativity in people that sometimes, you know, they don't have time to explore. And that's really, really fun. And, you know, some people are super creative. They might be doing like a really intricate painting. But for some people, it's just about, you know, that trying that in-home workout that they've seen on TikTok, but still fun. And I think in this time, people have just needed that kind of little refuge or that piece of joy in their lives. And when it comes to diversity and inclusion, which is one of the things that is like near and dear to my heart is I think about making sure that everyone has a place. You can see everyone on TikTok from like I mentioned doctors before, to school teachers, to construction workers, to beekeepers, to painters, to pottery makers, to plant enthusiasts. And this idea of someone like you can be on a platform altogether is something that's really connecting and heartwarming in this time. I was just watching Critical Garden Marcus and he loves plants. And he just, every day, pre-stay-at-home, he would show 
you know, all the plants in his neighborhood and his backyard and teach people about plants. But now he's kind of incorporating self-care, you know, working out outside while he's at home and helping people learn about plants as well at the same time. And it's just really fun that you can have like a plant enthusiast next to a celebrity, next to a medical professional all on the same platform, meaning there's a place for you. And then lastly, that idea of wanting a place to connect. In this time, I think one of the thing, themes that I've seen online and just as we all have been talking to our friends probably more than we have before is that we all need each other more than ever and tiktok is definitely a place that's become a, a gathering place for connection plus joy in terms of creating kudzi chikambu director of creator community at tiktok speaking with city lights producer summer evans you are tuned to wabe atlanta On September 18, 1990, Atlanta was selected to host the 1996 Centennial Olympic Games, an event that many view as a turning point in the city's trajectory. To mark the 30th anniversary of that moment, the Atlanta History Center opened the exhibition Atlanta 96, shaping an Olympic and Paralympic City. It's on view through the end of this month. Ahead of the opening in September, I spoke with the curator, Sarah Dilla. She explained what distinguishes this show from that of previous Olympics exhibitions at the Center. The Atlantis History Center has had a long history of being involved with the city's Olympic history. It actually stems from the fact that the organizing committee of the Olympic Games selected Atlanta History Center as the repository for all of their collections, all the records and objects left over and videos and photos from the process of bidding for and preparing for and hosting the games. The institution has this vast treasure trove of all kinds of things that tell the story of of a city's time in the spotlight. And and as you mentioned, that was all used in, in the past exhibition. And now here we are 30 years after the city won the bid, and we're looking back a little bit differently than before. And how it's different is really that that this exhibition is a departure from your traditional sports history in a museum setting. You might think of a sports hall of fame. And and this is not a sports hall of fame. We want to kind of look at the Olympics as this inherently urban project and how the Olympics really change a city and, and garner attention and create all kinds of ripple effects of actions and reactions of people leveraging that spotlight and the resources and the massive change that comes from uh, the Olympics coming to a city. We hope that this exhibition will encourage people to really think about why Atlanta is the way it is, as well as kind of pulling back the curtain of how a city puts on such a massive event and the changes that it creates. When that announcement that Atlanta won the bid for the games was made, I had lived here over a decade, and yet I did not realize how much impact that made on Native Atlantans, on people 
who had lived here much longer than I, the, the pride was palpable. I remembered exactly where I was when the announcement came. I was in the lobby of our Red Garen television station, and some of my colleagues were watching our television. And when the announcement came on, they burst into tears. You know, the, the pride was amazing. And of course, when Maynard Jackson accepted in French, if you will, it was all the more glorious. So it was very special to be part of that moment, but also a window into how much meaning it had for people who were born or grew up here. Yes, I, I'm glad you mentioned uh, your personal story, remembering it. And I think that rings true for for so many people that we've talked to in the course of, of planning this exhibition. And also, you know, of course, the community that's still in Atlanta who was involved in different aspects of the games. It is absolutely a golden moment and a very nostalgic moment in, in people's memories and in the city's history. The exhibition includes touchless interactive experiences. How will museum goers interact without touch? <laughs> that is part of our new normal. Um, I, I think, you know, the museum industry, just like everyone else right now, has been deeply affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. And this exhibition was actually well underway of development when, with the onset of, of the pandemic. And so we had to really step back and reassess and really think about what museums were going to be like once we were able to reopen again. With the opening of this exhibition, we had planned a variety of interactives throughout the space that were, you know, your traditional touch screens to play videos from the time, footage from the games, oral histories, and that kind of thing, as well as tangible activities to kind of help learning intergenerationally. And so we are experimenting with a new technology that allows you to use touch screen selections without your fingers. So you hold up your hand in front and your, your gestures are captured and they uh, become the kind of the mouse click or the, the finger click. Oh, that's fascinating. It feels kind of Star Trek. <laughs> yes, you know, the 1990s were a big moment for uh, technological innovation. So I hope we're kind of, we're, we're following the trends there. The 1996 games were actually the very first to have uh, an official website. So we're, we're continuing with the technological innovations, hopefully. Now there are four themes in the exhibition. Envisioning, campaigning, realizing, and reflecting. I'd appreciate if you could take us through each one, Sarah. Envisioning highlights 11 leaders who were involved in making the games a reality for Atlanta. How far back did that effort go? 
Talking about these four themes and how the exhibition is structured, this is, is really the, the groundwork for making this exhibition kind of encourage people to think about why Atlanta is the way it is and how the games fit into its long trajectory of, of kind of pushing for increasing status, national status, international status. So that's kind of how we got to these themes. We want to kind of break this story down into the steps of a project and kind of open up the actual process of this massive civic undertaking of the Olympic Games. And so we start with this idea of, of having an idea, of having a vision, and look both at the roots of the 1996 Olympic and Paralympic Games and, and the, the pitch, the starting point of the pitch to have those, as well as all the other kinds of actions and activities that were bubbling up around the city in the late 20th century. And, and who, who were the big actors and who were the people kind of pushing for change or pushing for big new efforts in Atlanta? It highlights a variety of, of Atlanta residents who are doing that work across the board, whether that's developers trying to assess what the downtown will be like in the era of a burgeoning convention industry, or whether that's folks who want to start a coalition of bringing the games to Atlanta, or whether that's a disability rights movement that ends up funneling into efforts to make the Paralympic Games have more parity in Atlanta. So there are all these kind of initial ideas that we wanted to ground people with from the beginning of this story to show a bit more behind this story that's often just thought of as a sports history. The leaders whom you highlight are not just politicians, but also artists, athletes, and disability rights advocates. What determined the 11 you chose? 11 is, is certainly not a comprehensive list by any means. And, and when we work on an exhibit like this, it's at its base an editing process, right? And just like a book or an article, we have only a small amount of space to tell a really impressive, large story of all the people and what they were doing in Atlanta in the 20th century, late 20th century. We selected 11 to kind of capture the different facets that we wanted to make sure came across throughout this story. And they are certainly not all, all politicians. You know, the, the push to have the Olympics was, was something that was very much led by Atlanta's city leadership and business community. As the story goes in Atlanta, you know, everyone who, who knows that story, who, who remembers being part of the where they were when the bid announcement knows the role of Billy Payne and Andy Young in, in generating the pitch and the excitement around the possibility of getting the games. But there's so much other activity happening at that time that all kind of converges in the 1990s. Uh, and we wanted to use these individuals to kind of put faces to those, those initiatives. Campaigning is the next theme in the exhibition, which focuses on garnering support for the games. Do you present both the excitement 
for the games coming to Atlanta as well as the stories of those who opposed it? In, in this section, we really wanted to capture both the story of the bid, which is, which is a large story in itself, and also the sense of what was happening in the run-up to the games, the impending deadline, the ripple effects almost of, of the announcement that the games are in fact coming to Atlanta and, and how do different people want to get in on that? Uh, how do they want to, to leverage some of that spotlight and some of the resources? Or how are they acting at odds with it? It's all kinds of, of motion at that time. We start off with the story of the pitch, the story of the bid, and how how the presentation of, of bringing the games to Atlanta was, was created and how they gained support for that presentation. And Atlanta had this very elaborate five volume bid book, it's called in, in the Olympic world, which is, which is basically your application to be a host city. And we have a, uh, a mock-up of this book because this is in the age of creating a book before, uh, before your desktop publishing. So it's all kind of clippings and taped and colored pencils of, of what the book layout should appear as. And once the games are secured, we also wanted to look at all of the different initiatives to, uh, to grab hold of that excitement and to help shape what Atlanta was going to be to the world once the games were here. And that took the form of people pushing for social and legislative change, whether it's the Olympics out of Cobb movement, which was run by uh, the LGBTQ community in an effort to change discriminatory legislation in Cobb County and not have the Olympics kind of have a presence in Cobb County until that was changed. And it takes the shape of the individuals who are pushing to uh, host the Paralympic Games, which is that was not secured until a bit after the Olympic bid was won. Today, in today's games, they're both secured together, but that's kind of a change that was made. Continuing through the exhibition, the theme realizing presents visitors with the unfolding of the games. Would you tell us some of your favorite moments from this part of the exhibition? In this section of the games, it is the physical preparation. There's so much activity going along in the preparation of the games, but uh, one of the most recognizable parts of games preparation is venue construction and jobs uh, and the bustle around that. And, and of course, the work of the athletes and the role of the athletes. So in this section, we really wanted to locate the games preparation and bring it into the summer of 1996. Uh, we go through stories of uh, the public art that was created, the venues that were constructed and sites that were constructed. We talk about the park and the stadium in Summer Hill uh, which was Centennial Olympic Stadium, and tell the story of, of those major sites of urban transformation and urban renewal efforts around Olympic-related construction. And so those are interesting stories because they, they harken back to our effort to put this 
story in the longer context of the city and the longer push for change. Any memorabilia in this show not previously on display at the History Center? We have things from your most memorable athletes from the 1996 games, whether that's the fastest man alive, Michael Johnson, um, or the video of, of Carrie Strug. Uh, we have these moments that capture that, the kind of golden memories of the games, but also the way that athletes um, kind of bring social and political issues to, to a broader audience through, through their performances. Do you include the Cultural Olympiad in this show? Yes, that is uh, one of our, our facets is cultural change in the city. And, and from the beginning, we kind of start the thread of how arts leaders and artists have shaped the city and, and the different forms that that took in the 80s and 90s. The Olympics also brought a large investment to the arts and culture world of Atlanta, whether that's through public art or kind of seed money for projects at our city's cultural institutions, both small artist organizations and the large museums that we recognize today. There were a variety of exhibitions and performances through the Olympic Arts Festival, and there was also the very first cultural Paralympiad that happened at that time. We interweave the story of arts and culture investment um, because that's a major part of, of shaping the city, right? As the, the Olympics come, city leaders and Olympic organizers want the city to project well for, for a global audience. Uh, and that includes a rich cultural scene. One of my favorite objects that we have in the exhibit is actually a model of the 1996 cauldron. It's a very delicate artist model made out of balsa wood and toothpicks, but it was, it was one of the commissions that the cultural organizers on the Olympic teams that they organized. So it's a commissioned work and that's a very rare occurrence for a, for a cauldron. Olympic cauldrons are typically designed by architects or, or engineers to make sure they're um, functional and that they'll hold that flame for the duration. Oh, and of course, the unforgettable moment with Muhammad Ali. That is true. That is another one of those, the bullet points of what happened in the 1996 games. Muhammad Ali uh, is unforgettable, and it's, a, it's an example of, of how the role of an athlete carries so much more meaning than just the sport they play. Muhammad Ali's connection to Atlanta and the story of his comeback and how this lighting of the cauldron really, really brought his story full circle is, is an interesting component. Indeed. Some people have described Atlanta as a regional capital before the games and an international city after the Olympics. I know that was certainly in the hopes of those who organized the games. Do you think this singular event gets too much credit for transforming the city into what it is today? 
Well, Lois, I might be a little biased, uh, <laughs> but I think the I think the 1996 games were huge. They were certainly huge for the story of recent Atlanta. But I think, and part of what this this exhibit looks to, and what I hope people will be encouraged to think about, is is that this event fits into the recurring types of things that that Atlanta's leaders were doing over over a long century or more of the city's history. That trajectory shows that constant progression of making Atlanta have increasing status nationally and then increasing status internationally. It led up to the games in in a sensible progression. I hope that visitors will think about that aspect of of the Olympics, which is really what the foundation of this exhibit seeks to do, is, is put the games in this setting where people can understand them as the massive civic undertaking that they were, and yet another step in Atlanta's quest for that increasing image, that increasing status, that name recognition. Sarah Dilla curated the exhibition Atlanta 96, Shaping an Olympic and Paralympic City, on view at the Atlanta History Center through the end of January. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow morning at 11, prepare for a sit-in. Playwright Pearl Clegg and Chris Moses of the Alliance Theater will tell us about the story celebrating the power of youth to change history as it follows three young friends learning about sit-ins of the civil rights era. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I would just so love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WADE City Lights. Thank you for listening to member-supported 90.1 WADE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wab.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.